strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, happy Monday during King LASIK season of savings. LASIK for both eyes is now just $3,500. That's a $2,000 savings. You couple that with 0% financing for 24 months on approved credit. LASIK with Dr. King is only $146 a month. Go to kinglasik.com slash Arizona for complete details. So, um... We talked earlier about what's happening in Maricopa County and the voting. And I understand people are upset. I would be, too, if it were if I were a candidate. You work long and hard, sometimes a couple of years on the campaign trail. And on Election Day, there are so many problems and you start asking questions. How did it affect you? And were you the one that was most adversely affected? Did this cost you the election? When you look at what's happening right now, um, the way it's being handled overshadows what happened. And when you get excited, when you get upset, when you get angry and you let your temper get the best of you, then I think that's when the problems for you begin. Because right now the candidates have a right to be upset about Maricopa County and the mistakes that were made. But when you start threatening people, I want you to hear uh, Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates is the chair of the County Board of Supervisors, and he has been the face of heading up what the explanations of the election are. And he has, it's gotten to a point where he's not even sleeping at home. I'm not going to get into the details of this, but I'll put it this way. When the sheriff suggests that uh, I spend the night somewhere else, I do it. That's absurd. But that's the world we live in now. The idea now when mistakes are made and mistake, there's no doubt that there were mistakes in Maricopa County. Now, whose fault they are? We don't know that. That's the issue here. We don't know what happened yet. The attorney general in Arizona has demanded an explanation and there should he should get one. The entire state of Arizona, but especially the voters in Maricopa County, deserve to get an explanation as to what happened and why it happened. A transparent uh, example or, or a transparent explanation of what exactly happened in Maricopa County. And I believe that we'll get one. But the jumping to the conclusion that this was stolen, that this is some overt act, that this is again, I, I don't. The things that would have to happen for that to happen are almost impossible. The number of people with all of the eyes on Maricopa County that have been on Maricopa County for it to be pulled off, for you to be fooled again because people believe that 2020 was stolen as well. It's a big difference between big mistakes that were made and um, and in it being uh, an intentional act. That, to me, is the biggest issue. When you look at the results in Arizona, when you look at what's happening, there is only an 850-vote lead for Chris Mays, the Democrat, over Abe Hamaday, the Republican. That, to me, is the race where I would be the most upset. If I'm Abe Hamaday or Chris Mays, depending on which way this ends up falling I would be the I'd be most angry about that because there's a there is a legitimate argument um Katie Hobbs the governor elect governor elect Hobbs is leading Carrie Lake by over 17,000 votes that would mean that every single one of the votes that went into that voting drop box, that door three, would have had to gone for Carrie Lake. And every single person that they say are disenfranchised voters on Election Day, and we all know that those Election Day voters skewed very heavy Republican, but every single one of them would have had to have been Carrie Lake voters. That's where the problem for me lies, that the printer issue – did not only affect one party, it affected everybody that showed up on election day.
Now, you're right to say that the vast majority of those voters on Election Day were presumed, and it showed out in overnight voting. And what happened overnight uh, with the day of elections, when the numbers came out, it equalized a lot of what was happening. Katie Hobbs had a 14 percent lead when I went to bed on Election Night, and those were the early mail-in ballots. As the night went on and the election day voters, the in-person voters on election day were counted, Carrie Lake caught up and at one time was within a couple of thousand votes. Now we're at about 17,400 is the difference. I'm not saying give up. I'm not saying quit and, and just concede. But what I am saying is the attitudes that we have about how we handle it next To say I want every vote counted and if it gets to a recount, I want them recounted. I want to see what the answers are in Maricopa County. And I haven't heard much different from the late campaign, but there are people out there that just get to the point of violence where they threaten violence against people with absolutely no proof of illegality. And I just – I don't understand that. And here's the other part of this. While this is going on, while and I warned of this. If you focus on 2020, you're going to lose in 22. And that that is happening. You're going to lose in 22. And now here we are in 22, and we'll lose in 24. And that's the concern because the Hobbs administration is already taking shape. She has already started talking about the policy and where some of the shifts um, will be. Um, here's a, here's a, just a, a line. Hobbs already has miffed some GOP lawmakers with the ink on the ballots barely dried, saying the same week that the vote count sealed her victory, she would call a special session to get rid of the state's pre-statehood abortion ban as one of her first actions. She also told reporters she would take a hard look at possibly defunding the state's border strike force. That is the consequences of an election. So this is for everyone out there. I, and I, I understand that what I've, what I'm doing sometimes does not make me popular with people that I normally agree with. But there's just some times where you have to speak up and speak your mind. That doesn't mean I'm going to change a lot of them. I'm just stating what I believe. And that is if my party and I am a registered Republican, if we don't focus on 24, we're going to lose 24. We focused on 20. We're losing in 22. We didn't gain seats in the state legislature. We did do well with members of Congress, by the way. We did pretty well there by gaining a couple of seats in the House with redistricting. But at the very best, it's going to be three, three in statewide races. It's probably going to be four, two if it stays the way that it is right now. And now the policy changes are coming. And so we've got to be nicer to each other. You know, I, I within the political parties, we have to be nicer to each other. And we just aren't. And the Republican Party is fractured. There's no doubt about that. And people need to figure out a way to settle their differences and focus on 2024. It's not selfish. As a matter of fact, it's about having a, a robust election system where both sides have reasonable ideas and good candidates. And we put our best foot forward and voters decide because what's in Maricopa County, pay attention. The number one voter demographic in Maricopa County is registered independents. That doesn't mean that they've registered independent because they don't have political beliefs. Some are right-leaning independents. Some are left-leaning independents. Some are a mixed bag. But they're independents because they don't want what's going on in the party system. 
They don't want to deal with the infighting and the backbiting in the Republican or the Democratic Party in Arizona. And unless we start taking a hard look at those people and trying to entice them to look at our policies and tell them why our policies are the best for Arizona moving forward, we will continue to lose elections. The days of the Republican Party as we know it in Arizona are long gone. And it's sad to see people make threats of violence. It's sad to see people pick up and – and make you know, violent threats. Now, I would say to you, most of those, and it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one right now getting threatened. It's easy for me to say that the majority of those threats are just people blowing off steam on social media, the old keyboard warriors. But if it were my family, I'd be a little terrified. Be a little terrified. We're going to get you caught up on the biggest news stories of the day. We do a segment called Did You Hear This? We're going to do it in just a couple of moments. <laughs> Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, it's 1120. Let's get you caught up on the headlines. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. A large rail rail union, Smart TD, voted to reject a labor deal that could move the U.S. toward a rail strike in December. This could affect the transport of agricultural, energy, and manufacturing goods, dramatically affecting so many industries in this country. Supply chains could be paralyzed, potentially costing the economy billions of dollars a day. Do you think the White House will step in again to prevent the strike? I don't know what they're going to do. They've got to get in. They, I thought, they thought they had a deal a few months ago, and it hasn't worked out yet. There's a couple of rail unions that are still holding out, and there's other rail unions that have agreed in principle to a deal that have said they will honor the picket lines if those other unions strike. Um, UPS, who is the largest rail client, has already said that they are trying to find alternative ways to ship goods so that it could minimize the delays. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be delays. They say minimize the delays. This could be traumatic for our economy. So what will they do to get this in? Now, I'm sure the White House is, is, is talking with people, but how much can they force their hand? That's the big question. <laughs> Maricopa County Board of Supervisors Bill Gates joined Arizona's Morning News today and discussed the rise in intimidations against election officials. Threats of violence should never be normalized, of course, and I'm in particular more concerned about our elections workers who who have been dealing with this on a daily basis. Should federal legislation be passed to help discourage threats against officials? I don't know that that's going to do any good. You know, people have a right to speak their mind, and if you make a threat, it's already against the law. The problem here, I think, in my mind, is that people, uh, they, they lose sight of the goal. Uh, I, I said this about some people that were involved in the defund the police movement. If you want safer neighborhoods and you want better relationships with law enforcement and better trained cops that do a better job, you need more, not less cops. You defeat your purpose when you say we hate law enforcement, they're murderers with badges and we want to get rid of them. You're defeating your own goal. And I would say the same thing here with people that want our election system fixed. You're threatening and intimidating election workers and then you want elections to run more smoothly and more quickly and at the same time you're driving people away from ever wanting to be a part of the process you are becoming a part of the problem you have to look at what your goals are and act accordingly and stop being selfish 
You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to get you caught up on the headlines. Campaigners from the Last Generation Climate Change Group have targeted an art exhibition with all-purpose flower in Milan, featuring pieces by Andy Warhol. Protesters were demanding a stop to the reopening of coal-fired power stations and new natural gas exploration. As one of the women was led away, she said she was fighting for her daughters and students, the generation who would face the consequences of climate change. Do extreme protests bring awareness to their cause? No, they make people laugh at them. By the way, by the way, all of you my age, around 50, 55, we are the generation that our parents and those people that protested back in the 80s, we are the ones that were going to pay the price for that, and they were wrong then. Um, and so this, there is no doubt that the climate on the earth changes. This idea of radical protest is just nothing but a cry for your own personal attention. No, you, you are driving people away from your opinion, not toward it. You are destroying art or trying to destroy art, and you're gluing yourself to the floor. There is no one taking you seriously when you do that. No one. You are defeating your own purpose. That's what this entire did you hear this is turning into, is that you are defeating your own goals with your selfish, angry agenda, and you you make people laugh at you is what you do. In Arizona, automatic recounts are only triggered when the margin of victory is less than or equal to a half a percentage point by the votes cast. In the Attorney General's race, Chris Mays is only ahead of Abe Hamaday by 850 votes. Do you think our automatic recount law helps restore trust in our election process? Well, I think it, yeah, I think it does when you have an automatic recount and then it turns out that the recount pretty much matches with the regular count. If we see dramatic changes, that's going to have people not trust the election system, but I think it's necessary. When you have two and a half million or however many votes have been cast, and that looks like what the number is in that race, I'm going to look again real quick. In that race right now, there have been, yeah, there have been two and a half million, a little over two and a half million votes cast, and only an 850 vote difference. You want to make sure that that was done the right way. So yes, I think that restores the trust that people have, and I think it's the right thing to do. Great job, Julia. We'll do it again tomorrow and then again on Wednesday as we do Did You Hear This at 1120 every day to get you caught up on the big headlines. We are going to talk in a moment about the economy, and we're going to start with the possibility of this rail strike, another unintended um, roadblock to financial success for America. How will it be handled by the White House? That's going to be a big, uh, you know, and again, I don't think it's their responsibility. I'm not laying this at the feet of Joe Biden, but what will their response be if there is a rail strike? How will they jump in? Will they do something to offset the damage that this is going to do. So we got to keep close eye on this and we'll talk about it next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. All right, let's try to bring it all home. We just and did you hear this? And, uh, you heard Julia talk about the rail strike that may happen. Two of the largest rail unions diverged on labor deals Monday. Smart TD rejecting a deal, but BLET, B-L-E-T, voting to, for ratification. The BLET Engineers Union said it will honor the picket line if the other union goes on strike in pickets, which mean we still could have a rail strike here in America, which would be devastating to our economy, costing billions of dollars a day because we cannot move goods across the country without rail service. So what then will happen in this labor agreement to try to make this 
so that the unions will sign on to it so we can avert disaster. There are two things here. Uh, number one is when you have the power position in a negotiation, you use it. And so that's what they are doing. They understand the devastation that a rail strike could cause this country. They also realize that there is not a White House here that's going to break the union in order to save the economy. If you go back and look at the precedent that was set, there was a time Ronald Reagan broke the unions. Ronald Reagan broke the unions when it came to air traffic controllers because it was something necessary. Air traffic controllers are going to go on strike. And they were going to shut down air travel and the and commerce on aircraft all across America, and it would impact other parts of the world because obviously you cannot fly without air traffic controllers. The White House stepped in and busted the union, and they had to go back to work. And it is obviously an oversimplification, but that's what happened. The unions know that that's not going to happen with this president. I'm not calling it good or bad. I'm just calling it like I see it. There's no way in the world that this White House is going to go in and do something to get those force those workers back to work and break the unions. It's not going to happen with this president. So they know that they can push very, very hard to get their best deal because they will not be their hands will not be forced by the White House. At least I don't believe it will be. So as long as they are not being too unreasonable, they're going to get everything they want to avert this strike. But this is also one more economic hurdle that the United States has got to endure, and it's also one more way you've got to look at making sure we're doing everything we can to keep commerce moving in America. And you couple that with the economic signs that are there. We are sprinting toward a recession. We understand the Fed raising with 50 basis points. We are seeing that move toward a recession grow more and more every single day. So what is it that we can do? The White House, uh, I'm going to look at, I've got a couple of things here in the stack about what's happening, what the White House is doing when it comes to climate and what they're not doing. Um, the White House says they may have to block out the sun, um, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, but climate talks end with a deal to pay poor nations for damages. So here we are at a time in America where we are still at a very severe debt. The White House keeps touting how much money they're saving us and the deficit reduction that's out there. And then they continue to find other ways to spend that money, saying now that we're saving all this money in one area, we can spend it over here. So now we, have, we haven't signed on to a formal agreement yet, but there is an agreement in principle that wealthier nations will redistribute wealth and send money to poorer nations because our carbon emissions in our rich countries are destroying the planet in those poor countries and we're going to give them reparations. So on top of everything else that's happening economically in America, and I can guarantee you that a big part of this will come out of the fossil fuel industry, you will see them paying billions of dollars more in taxes in in order to pay these fines or reparations or whatever you want to call them when this deal is reached. So now we're talking about the high uh, heating oil prices in your home. Diesel fuel prices remain very, very high. They can't seem to get their arms around doing anything to help with these situations. And um, they're trying to do it even worse. So the Biden administration, faced with a Congress that would not endorse his expansive regulatory agenda, President Obama famously remarked, I've got a pen and I've got a phone. Almost 10 years later, 
Here's what's going on with the president of the United States. This is how that story starts. It's an opinion piece. The latest round of policymaking by pen and phone came when President Biden designated 53,804 acres of land in north central Colorado as the Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument. This designation will have significant consequences because the entire area is now withdrawn from a host of future resource extractions and other productive land use activities. So fossil fuel industry, mining industry, and others are going to suffer again for these. This is just the policy. I'm having a great conversation with somebody, and I I like the conversation. I don't know how he feels about it, but we're talking about climate activism. And how I'm not buying into climate activism. This is another part of this. I'm not buying into the activism. When your level of, of insight and your level of intellect and your level of devotion to your cause is to deface art and then glue yourself to the floor, I don't care what your cause is. Your activism is a joke to me, an absolute unmitigated joke. You're going to throw a bag of flour on a car. You're going to deface Warhol's art in Milan. You're then going to glue yourself to the floor and scream and rant when the police come and take you away. You're serving no cause. You're serving no cause whatsoever. So we have differences of opinion on how bad the climate is and is it destroying the planet? Are we now at the end of the age? We've been hearing this since the 1970s. And I don't expect people to agree with me. I never do. But I back up with what I read. 1975, the cooling planet. In a a Newsweek story, it it chronicled all of the scientists that said we are on our way to a freeze. That was in 1975. I moved to Florida in 1978, the age of 11. 1978. And look what happened since then. Then it was global warming. First it was global cooling and the, the impending ice age. Then it was global warming. All of the polar ice caps, all of the glaciers were all going to melt. Florida, where I was living, is going to be underwater. We have a hole in the ozone. We're going to burst into flames. And then after they couldn't figure it out, because sometimes it's eight feet of snow in Buffalo, and other times it is the hottest day of the year or the hottest day we've had in 50 years in Arizona. They can't tell if it's freezing or cooling. It's called climate change. Now, the science says these extreme weather conditions are the result of climate change. So now it doesn't matter. Their bases are all covered. It could be cooling. It could be warming. It could be a combination of the two, severity of storms. It's all because of climate change. So the science continues to change, but what doesn't change is the activities of the people that are touting it. That's what bothers me more than anything else. All of these climate advocates, these climate activists out there not changing a thing about their lifestyle. The very wealthy among us, which, listen, you know me, I'm a capitalist. I applaud wealth. But when you are not going to change your lifestyle, when you own three, four, five homes, tens of thousands of square feet of living space that you have to heat and cool year round, when you own those properties and you fly between them on a private jet with you and three other people on a plane that carries 20 or 30, when you do those kinds of things and have it altered your lifestyle, don't lecture me because I put all of my trash in one case. Can. Don't lecture me about my climate, my, my carbon footprint. 
You are now, until you are practicing what you preach, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And if the people that represent your movement, if you're okay in making excuses for people that are gluing themselves to museum floors and defacing artwork, then no one's going to take you seriously. And I certainly am not. I'm as concerned about my planet. I'm concerned about my community and my state. I want it to be beautiful and pristine. I want Havasu Pie to look exactly like it does. I want the Grand Canyon to look exactly like it does. I want the forests. I love the White Mountains. I want that to look exactly like it does for generations. I want my grandkids to take their kids there and have it be exactly the same as I get to see it now. But the idea... That we are going to legislate against rich countries and give to poor countries to solve this problem is another idea of the redistribution of wealth, period. That's what the problem is. That's what the problem is. So we're going to talk about policy before we close out the show today. Policy of what works and what doesn't work. We're going to get to that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. We all base our political ideologies and life views based on how we were raised and what we have seen, what we have gone through, and the people that influence us. There's no doubt about that. Um, I was raised as a young boy um, in Ohio. I've talked about being born in Northeast Ohio. I grew up in Florida, but I was lived in Northeast Ohio until I was about 10 years old, 11 years old maybe. Um, my uncles were Teamsters. Um, my parents worked at a trucking company. The uh, They met, actually met there. It was the third largest trucking company in the country at one time. It was called Spectre Freight out of Northfield, Ohio. So I have always been a working class person, and that's what my family was. My family largely, my uncles, and uh, I think maybe my grandparents, I don't know. I, was, I didn't care about politics. I think they were working class Democrats back in the early 70s. And uh, what's interesting about that, my mother included, uh, my family, um, with the exception of one cousin who actually now posted on Facebook how bad he feels that he voted for Joe Biden, um, are conservative Republicans. Now, that's not good or bad. It's just an observation how people can change based on their set of circumstances and what they've seen happen in their life. But to me, it's about policy. It's about right versus wrong and not always right versus left. And when you look at what works and what doesn't, that's what I think all of us get frustrated by is what's working and what isn't when it comes to immigration. What we are doing right now isn't working. The politics of it says, well, it's never worked. No one's ever been able to fix it. Trump didn't fix it. Bush didn't fix it. Republicans didn't fix it. You're right. They didn't. What's happening right now is the worst it's ever been. That is directly related to the policies of this administration. When you talk about the economy, what works? Look at the position Arizona is in. And if you're new to Arizona, I have seen dramatic changes. And many people have seen dramatic changes in Arizona that are staggering. Uh, Arizona went through a really difficult time where it was touch and go that we were on the edge of the cliff. And thanks to the hard work of former Governor Brewer, 
and the state legislature making some very difficult decisions, sometimes angering a lot of people in the decisions they made. They pulled us back from the brink, and they were able to stop the bleeding in the economy and get us to a stable place. As bad as it was, it was stable. What the Ducey administration did in working with legislators and working with you know the Speaker of the House and the Senate President and agendas that we're going to move forward was a focus on the economy and the intentional diversification of that economy. So what works and what hasn't? When you look at the availability of jobs in Arizona now compared to eight years ago when this governor took office, it is a dramatic difference that has worked. When you look at places, I used Mesa as an example earlier today. When you look at the intentional growth through the city government of Mesa and working with the Chamber of Commerce, their business development office in the city, and how they have had intentional growth in high-end jobs and higher-paying high-tech jobs, which then bring in more high-end housing, you see an immensely different city than was there 10, 15, 20 years ago. What works? That doesn't mean that Republicans have all of the answers. What that means is we should be looking at what works for everybody. The other thing that I'm fortunate in life is that I've never had a class warfare mentality. Even when I was really poor, I admire rich people. I grew up in an era where people pointed and said, someday you can do that. I worked for people as an electrician. I was the manager of a company on Sanibel and Captiva Islands, which everybody has heard about now after the destruction by Hurricane Ian, which was like if you live in Arizona now, it's like Paradise Valley on an island. These are you know a lot of times second homes for families, vacation homes for the very wealthy and people that have done very, very well. And to a person, when I would have conversations with them, they always gave me the impression that if they did it, I could do it. They never made me feel less than. I mean, I was there to work for them. I was I was employed by them. They were paying me a wage. It wasn't like they were fixing me lunch and telling me stories. But when I had conversations, they always made it feel like anything is possible. Um, And those are the people that I remember, very wealthy people that are encouraging the entrepreneurial spirit and other people and saying, work hard and you can achieve anything. And that's the American dream. I've never had a class warfare mentality. I wanted my bosses to be rich. I wanted my bosses to be filthy rich because I wanted my check to clear. And when it came time for my review, I wanted a raise. And I want to entice as many wealthy business owners, the brilliant people that know how to build a business and make it successful in Arizona. I don't want them in Texas. I don't want them in Nevada. I don't want them in my home state of Florida. I want them right here. I want them building businesses here, building wealth here, building industry and empire here so that you and I can work for them. And if you want to go out on your own, you have the means and the ability to go out on your own and and stake your own claim. I want that here. So what gets us there? Because we all understand the seriousness of the problem of homelessness and hunger. Well, those are the people with the money that are going to solve that problem. Tomorrow, we're going to talk specifically about that because of when you look at federally what they've spent money on in other countries, they have no idea if the billions of dollars they spent have made any kind of an impact on homelessness. And it's a shame. It is an absolute shame. Just about out of time. If you're a social media user, I would love to keep in touch between shows at Broomhead
KTAR is where you can find me on Twitter. Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram. By the way, at Broomhead Show is the show page on Twitter. That's where you get updates on guests and the things that are coming up on the show. Either way, those are the three ways to find me uh, if you'd like to. And I would love to keep in touch. We'll be back tomorrow morning just after 8 a.m. with another edition of the show. Thanks for joining me for part of this day. We'll talk again tomorrow. God bless.